welcome to the Fantasy Review Podcast, where the fantasy doesn't end on the page. My name is James Doolin. I'm the author of No Heart for a Thief, and I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Nathan Klimbara, a, a blogger and reviewer for the Fantasy Review. And we are so lucky to have our special guest for today, Moses Oze Otome. Uh, is, is that correct? Nailed it. Nailed it? Okay. <laughs> And so we're we're really excited to get into it, but but before we dive into the interview questions, how are you doing, Moses? Good, I'm good, and I'm excited to talk to you all. It's been a crazy year, so yeah, it's nice this this whole publicity and talking. I, I love it. I'm cool. I'm really excited to talk to you guys. Have you been doing like a big publicity tour and and kind of hitting a bunch of podcasts and all that? I mean, not probably not more than like not the most, but I mean, it's new to me. You know, I'm a, yeah. it's a debut author, so it's all cool. It's a lot of fun. We're we're excited to get into it. I guess I'll start with the the hard hitting question. In your bio, you listed yeah. your first ever uh, written work as a a series about warrior bunnies from Mars. Correct. So, will we be seeing <laughs> more of this series, and and where does it go from there? Honestly, I, I haven't seen much of the series in about thirty years. So I'd have to go check on where the adventure left off. Um, you know, if there's a demand, if Netflix calls me, I'm not going to turn them down, but uh, <laughs> too many irons in the fire right now to revisit it. I mean, it, I, it could, it could make a good middle grade or something like that. I, I, I would see it. You know what? You're right. I'm yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to ask my mom where she has it. Yeah. Read through it, <laughs> see if it's got legs. Yeah. But uh, I guess a little bit more serious, like you've obviously been doing this for a while since you started writing about warrior bunnies on Mars. So what got you into fantasy, sci-fi, what got you into this space and yeah. what are your inspirations in it? I think I had like a dual, like a dual entry into this space. One is a reader first and then one kind of is a writer where I read, um, my brothers got me Dragons of Autumn Twilight when I was like, I think 12, Dragonland series. And I was like a big, big time reader before then, but I hadn't read much fantasy, especially like adult fantasy, the kind of D&D inspired Forgotten Realms fantasy. So I picked that up and I was just what is this? And there's half elves, kinder and, and dragon. It was just such an adventure. And so that what, that's what got me hooked as a reader. I read all those books, everything. And I went on to like, like Icewind Dale trilogy, like all, all the classics, you know, and then or like Raymond Feast, George R. R. Martin, Robert Jordan, Robin Hobb. And then I read as an adult, I was like 23, I think I read um, P.H. White, The Once and Future King. Mm-hmm. And that was fantasy, but so different. It was so introspective and so psychological and emotion driven and it just devastated me i was like i didn't know a fantasy book could be like this you know and so that as a writer that's when i was like this is what i want to make like i love the other stuff and i love reading it and i you know i tried to make it but reading that i was like no this is it like this is what i want to do where did you get the inspiration for this kind of parable-esque story in the the lives of bajongo that's a good question i i some days I know, some days I don't, to be honest. Mainly I don't. It, it came, the whole thing came almost fully formed into my brain. I think it's one of the benefits of the developed form. I think my brain can hold about 80 to 90 pages of narrative in mind before I need to start like outsourcing to all kinds of files and documents. So yeah. it, it largely existed as a cohesive story. It's also a very simple story. So that helps with the parable. It's, you know, the kind of parable fable style. But I was, I was on the train. I used to live in New York. I was on the train either going to or from work. And that first line just came to me. I don't know from where, but you know, there is no water in the city of lies that hit me. And I was like, what in the world is this? Like, what does that mean? Where is this place? And I had this image of like, kind of a boy against the world, you know, like, like mm-hmm. a single tiny young figure in like an infinite space. And that was it. I just started, I literally pulled out my laptop on the train and started writing. Can you just give a little bit of an elevator pitch for the lies of the Ajungo to right. people who aren't familiar already with your work? Uh, yeah. So the lies of the Ajungo is, it's kind of sits at this intersection of fantasy and fable. And it is about, it takes place in a world where at the age of 13, the people in this city called the city of lies, they have their tongues cut out and it's exchanged for water. It's this, you know, centuries old deal made with this other empire that has access to water in this desert world. And it's about a little boy. His name is Tutu, and he's about to turn 13. He's about to lose his tongue. And he, uh, when his mother passed out from dehydration, he has to make a deal to go find water for the entire city. And he has one year to do it. And it's about him venturing into this endless desert full of terrifying lessons and things to encounter. It's a very long pitch. I'm sorry. I need to get better at truncating that. But. No, no, that was probably no, the shortest right? elevator pitch that any author okay. has given, honestly. Yeah, it's a short book. 
I, I think that even if you're you're writing a novella, I think authors often struggle with that elevator pitch because they're like, I I need ten more pages. Yeah, if I were good at writing elevator pitches, I'd be a poet. I need like <laughs> a lot of space to write anything useful. And starting off with your elevator pitch, it's not the lightest of stories. Uh, how did you feel going into something where where the elevator pitch is? When you're 13, you you have to cut out your or your tongue gets cut out in exchange yeah. for survival. How how do you approach a story that uh, tonally is kind of dark like that in terms of its its just concept? And yeah. then how how do you kind of balance tone within that? When I read so so in terms of fairy tale, this is kind of answering your previous question. The better way, like you know, when you read the Grimm's Brothers fairy tales, a lot of these classic fairy tales, or for me, I'm Catholic, so like even biblical stories darkness is a part of it you know like people get main people lose their kids people like and it's it's all treated as just matter of fact like yeah it, a lot of the it's just it's a you know, it's a hard world these things happen you know you you i think in the original cinderella like don't they like cut off their toes to fit in the shoe like this is just part of these worlds and so it felt like that when it came to me i was like yeah you know in this world this is kind of just what they take for granted this is how things are it's how it's been and so it fit with the kind of storytelling voice I was trying to access. And then from there, you know, some of it too is from the perspective of a child. I think some of the darkness comes from the fact that these are hap- this is happening to kids. Mm-hmm. And then maintaining that tone is, is that to Tutu, this world is new to him. So, so the darkness is very dark. It's very affecting. Everything hits him so much harder because it's, you know, if he was a 40 year old person in this environment, he'd be kind of grizzled and used to it. But at his age, it all hits pretty hard. And so it feels mm-hmm. very heavy. While you were pitching this to major publishers, did you find any pushback from it being a novella since that's still kind of an emerging, you know, form of storytelling in in traditional publishing? I actually didn't. I had a weird route to getting this published. So I had my editor, Carl Engel-Laird at Tor.com. Shout out to Carl. He's he's the best. I had met him at an event. He had read one of my shorts, some short story I had published in Fireside Fiction. And he's like, oh, this is cool. Good job. Yeah, I think he reached out on Twitter, or on email. And he's like, hey, I kind of dug this. Let me know if you have anything else. Or we met in person. He said, let me know if you have anything else. And I, I didn't. I'm a slow writer. <laughs> I was like, oh, crap. And it was my first interaction, like in New York with, a, you know, with an editor. It felt so very like, you know, hoity-toity. And so I ran home and I was like, can we curse? I won't curse. But I was like, crap, we don't have, I don't have anything really, you know, in this vein. I have, you know, I was kind of still finding my voice at the time. And so... It was like five years later, I had finally written something and I thought back, I was submitting it to Uncanny Magazine, which has a call for novellas every now and then. And then I was like, oh, right. I remember that editor guy was asking me, like, do I have anything? I, was like, I think this is what he meant. I think this is similar to the thing I'd written that he liked. And so I sent it to him and that was it. And he liked it and we went from there. So I didn't have to shop it around like, like I had to typically do. Yeah. So did you get your agent before you uh, pitched it? I did. I had my agent for, I wrote a YA novel. That, that was my debut that came out earlier this year. So I had my agent for that. He accepted that and we were pitching that. And then while, you know, now these things move, they move very slowly. You're waiting on things. While that was happening, I was like, well, I have this other project. I have this other person who's expressed interest in me. Let me see what happens. And, you know, these things happen kind of concurrently. That's pretty amazing. You're having a big year. It really has been, especially as like, I'm not older, you know, maybe in the course of life sense, but, you know, in terms of starting a career, I'm I'm a bit older and and I've been such a fan of so many authors and books for a long time. It's wild to be on the other side of it. Kind of getting back into the story. Mm. One of the things that I think was effective for me was, and I'm wondering about your thoughts behind this. I noticed and trying not to give too much away, the, the people that really are supportive of Tutu are the women around him. Most mm-hmm. people aren't named. He encounters another figure later in the book who's who's a man, doesn't get his name until the very end. Mm-hmm. Like they're the men in his life are not as effective or or supportive or actually important in Tutu's story. Yeah. Was that uh intentional and, and what significance did that have for you? It's a good question. I mean, to to some extent it was intentional. To some extent, you know, we're all victims of our own idiosyncrasies and traumas and life experience and whatever, you know, and I've had a lot of supportive women around me for most of my life. So I think that bled through some of it though, you know, a lot of the book is about education. It's about tutu learning. And I think at least in the States, I'm sure there's a gender balance that differs by society, but like here, you know, most 
early teachers are women. Most people who are responsible for, in some ways, teaching us culture and our environments are women. It's it's a duty and a burden. I think a lot of women have to deal with. And so, when I imagine Tutu encountering this world that he doesn't know and has to learn, I you know there is that there is the version of it that's like the old wise guy, you know, Gandalf mm-hmm. types. I don't know. I, I I'm a child of immigrants, so. Maybe that's the difference is that I didn't grow up with my grandparents. My, my grandparents were a different culture, different world, different times where even if they were teleported here, I don't think they could fully teach me this culture. It's not theirs. You know, it's not their mm-hmm. home. And so, you know, when I think about how people learn about their environment, to me, it's one, largely from other kids their age and two, largely from the women who are responsible for them. And, and, and I think that work falls disproportionately on women often. Yeah, what was really interesting while I was reading the book was how you were treating your young protagonist, because in a lot of ways, he kind of fits some of the the chosen one trope. Um, But on the other hand, he subverts that a lot, because rather than celebrating the youth of your main character, like a lot of fantasy books do, it almost seems like you were almost like mourning or lamenting your main character's youth in the way Mm -hmm. that, you know, you were kind of talking about, he has to go through all of these trials and tribulations and how terrible that is. Why did you choose the really young character as your main protagonist? And how did it influence the story you were telling? I think I tend to gravitate towards younger characters for... And I have some, I have some short stories of older characters. I think some of it is story arc reasons. A lot of my story arcs deal with somebody coming to understand their world. And so I, I think that makes more sense in some ways for like a younger person, the idea of them coming to understand the world they'll have to lead or inhabit later on. I think childhood is really hard too. I think people forget that. You know, when people look at kids, they see like, oh, kids are cute, you know, with their cheeks and they're fun and they're random and they're chaotic. But I think we forget that kids are dealing with Essentially, all the things we're dealing with, they just don't have the tools and the experience to handle it. It's really difficult. And so I have a lot of of admiration and respect for the process of emerging from childhood. And so when I want to create a protagonist, one who's who's sympathetic and and who you can root for and and also like kind of want to care for a little bit, like you, you, you don't want to see this person suffer, even though you know they will. And then also somebody who is going through all these hard things and isn't fully equipped for them. You know, I, I, I don't like to have bumbling characters. And I think it's a trope. We might talk about good and bad tropes later on, but I think it's a trope. You have like, either you have the higher, highly competent one character, but then they have to like escort this bumbling sidekick or whatever. Like, I just, I think life is hard enough for most things that are alive, whether it's humans or plants or animals. Life is so hard that you don't have to be bumbling to, to have it tough. You know what I mean? Like, and so I, I don't like to have bumbling characters. And so I think having somebody who's just not equipped for the things they're encountering, to me, feels more true. I, I prefer that. This can go for Moses and also James, because you've dealt with this, I think, in your own book. But is it hard to put yourself back in the shoes of somebody who's so young to get yourself in that headspace and not make them act too much like an adult? Yes and no. I'm a child, so maybe not as <laughs> just people who like <laughs> understand the tax code, because I don't. But like... <laughs> I, I mean, I still teach every now and then, you know, I used, I used to be a teacher and I still teach when I can. So I, I, I have some proximity to youth in a way that maybe some other adults don't, but I think also like, I think we overestimate maybe how big the difference is between adults and kids. Sometimes they are, you know, I remember being 10. I distinctly remember being 10 and in fifth grade. I remember one day having the thought of like, I don't feel very young. And I was like, I feel like, I don't know. I have friends. If you know I have, I eat, like, what am I, you know, what, what part of my life isn't adulthood? And I remember thinking that, of course, you know, a lot, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels like you've, you've already began life. It doesn't feel like you're in this like early, uh, what is it? It's like RPGs, like the tutorial mode. Like it doesn't feel like yeah. that. It feels like you're in it, you know? And so for getting into these characters' headspace, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to have somebody who is living a life that hasn't learned a lot of the lessons that I now know, you know, and just kind of rendering that more so than like, let me build a child and go from there it and it reminds me of i was in a panel i watching a panel not in a panel with uh nk jameson Mm -hmm. uh jemison and she was speaking on how there were some critiques of characters in uh the fifth season the the younger characters being too old like they didn't act their age and and she was like these characters are going through hard (laughs) trauma right you know if you've experienced trauma as a young person, it ages you. It, it mm-hmm. makes you make decisions in a way that 
we don't associate with kids. And I think you're right. I think we underestimate kids a lot. I don't think kids think they're young. They right. Kids think that they're grown. Think, kids think that they understand things. And to a certain extent, they do. But yeah. then there are some times where that understanding and that thought of understanding conflict. And I think that's where you see a lot of childhood. But yeah, I, I think people underestimate kids a lot. But I, I think you did a wonderful job kind of playing out that balance for Tutu. I think he he felt young, but he didn't feel like the author was condescending to age. Um, yeah. And I think that can that can come out sometimes when you see somebody who's trying to write a young person instead of writing who a young person actually is. Right. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. I, I think what you said just now, like the gap between understanding and thinking you understand is so beautifully stated. Like that really is what childhood is. You know, that's, yeah. that's a good way to think about it. I guess this is another transition into that youth thing in your author's note. You talked about how this felt like it had vibes of Attack on Titan <laughs> and often anime deals with youth. It deals with young characters do you think that plays into how you conceived this world? Did other animes play a role into the magic system or or the world itself? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm a, I'm a weeb. I'm a big time anime nerd. Less I mean, less so. I have less time than I used to, yeah. but I'm sure. I think my, my overall understanding of storytelling is heavily influenced by the anime I consume, you know, growing up and even now. So I think there's that aspect. And yeah, I, I, I think at least like the shonen anime that I grew up on, like there's this... I know part of their branding is like we're you know we're exploring like the enthusiasm of youth believing in yourself and overcoming the odds that's a big part of the messaging and uh you know some of that about some of that didn't fit with this world but i think it definitely played a role there were times where i felt like i could see the magic system in an anime style um because it's 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 definitely not a a heavily described magic system but it, it has more of the vibes of like power development and and interaction with the natural world in this kind of mystical way. And so that definitely gave me some anime vibes and I could see it playing out in an animated series. I mean, yeah, if anybody is listening and owns this production studio. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's a system that is not exclusively, you know, I don't want to say some things that haven't been revealed yet, but it's it's heavily willpower driven, which feels very, animes like if you just believe in yourself and you know you want it bad enough you can achieve it no there's limitations but i think whether because of sanderson's influence or not i think a lot of modern fantasy spends a good amount of time exploring the limitations of the magic system and which is good i think that's a good thing mm -hmm. but yeah it doesn't do that in this book and i think it, it has it feels more anime in some ways than traditional or at least modern fantasy whatever that means but you know more will be revealed well, well there's more books coming well, what what can you reveal about what is coming? I know you can't reveal much, but what what's the plan? Yeah. So, you know, we have three books. The next book takes place 500 years after the events okay. of this book. And that is a trend that will, the third book as well will take place 500 years after the events of the second book. So you will get to see the forever desert in like the most macro sense over time. Also novellas or are you venturing novellas. into? Okay. Mm -hmm. All novellas. Yeah. So the other really interesting thing about your, your book that I really found interesting was, was the villains, right? So, um, and I always fixate on villainy uh, whenever I, <laughs> I, I'm reading or reviewing books. If anybody reads my reviews, I think I talk about the villains more than I do anything else in anything. But what I really liked is that in a lot of epic fantasy, the villains are often othered, right? Like they're the other mm -hmm. thing, which is often coded as like non-white and non-European in many classical space. But for you, your villains are really intimate. They're like very local and very much rooted in the here and the now. Was that an explicit critique of the way the villains or the other is presented in the genre? Yeah, that's, first of all, great question. Second of all, you masterfully navigated asking that question without revealing anything about the book, which I don't know <laughs> if I could have done. So very skillful. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a descendant of empire. You know, I'm from, a, my family's Nigerian, Nigerian. So I'm a Nigerian American. We were colonized, you know, and I think, the way villainy is understood 
even not, maybe not even on a national level, even like an interpersonal level. When people think of like the kidnapper or like, it's always this weird, murky person from out of town or from a different, whereas, you know, statistically that's not the case. You know, most people are victimized by somebody they know and somebody they trust, especially for a lot of crimes. And so I, I think my notion of bad, maybe not evil, but my notion of bad or antagonist is, mu- is much more intimate. It's, it's this, you know, I, in Nigeria, we, the British brought a lot. My, my dad went to a British missionary school and also they subjugated us. You know, it, it's this, it's not so simple as like, look at that evil person with an eye patch who's coming after us. It's, it's, this is a very complicated idea. And I think part of what I, I think is important to the series and potentially drawn from Attack of Titan is that like this idea of hero and a villain I don't think it's as much as dichotomy as it is coin, you know? And I think for me, and I think this will be expressed more throughout the series, but even with this book, oh no, without spoilers, your hero is somebody else's villain. You know what I mean? Like when people say like, oh, my dad is my hero. You know, he got the job to provide her family and somebody else didn't. Somebody else's dad had to go home and tell his family he didn't, you know? And and, and that guy, your dad's not the best guy. You know, he's taking food off his plate. And I, I think- that is a conception that like, I, th- I think in the West, sometimes we struggle with accepting that like the people we hate are good to someone. You know, somebody really is rooting for them and we hate them. And, and I, I think a lot about, you know, Martin Luther King and, and what he's, how he's viewed now versus how he was viewed at the time. I know there are some stats that came out. So like 60, 70% of Americans had an unfavorable view of him during his life. And it, I think we often assume like, Oh, well, they were just racist. They were racist back then where it's like, People had political differences with him. People, you know, he was monitored by the FBI as considered an enemy of the state. People called him a philanderer. They had all these reasons to not like him that maybe even race aside. Whereas now he's ubiquitously a hero. We just accept that. And I think this idea of hero and villain, I, 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 I imagine it would be very hard for, if you told somebody in 1967 that that rabble rouser preacher who like, there was like, you know, comics, political cartoons of him, like destroying cities, like that guy is going to have a national holiday and he's going to be a hero. and everyone's going to love it. There's no way they'd buy it, you know? And, and I think if you told somebody now that the person they consider a villain is going to be a hero 50 years from now, it's very hard to follow. And so I, I think I wanted to explore that throughout the series. I was just hearing a report on the, the, uh, the writings of Alec, uh, Alex uh, Hayes, who characterized King's and Malcolm X's relationship as highly antagonistic and, and, dichotomous uh in a lot of ways it comes out like if you look at initial transcripts and things of that of the interviews the ways in which Hayes portrayed King kind of down talking Malcolm was was not what he was saying and Mm -hmm. so it's interesting that we even turn people who are uh not enemies and not villains to each other into villains for our own narrative right yeah i know that's a that's a good example wild history's wild (laughs) (laughs) i would like to talk about the themes of your book a little bit um because i think depending on the writer or sorry the reader they're going to get different themes out of it i i see it as a critique of power oligarchy capitalism and a lot of different things but i'm sure anybody else who's going to read it is going to get their own themes from the message of this parable-esque fable story. Was there anything that you're hoping readers take away from the themes that you wanted to put in the book? Yes and no. I'm a big believer in the muses. You know, like I I think to some extent I have control over the story and I'm delivering it. To some extent I don't. Some of these things are just passing through me and I, you know, I've been, I'm just the vessel for these ideas. So Whatever a person takes from this, as long as it's not like evil or hurtful, <laughs> if you take like, I should burn down my hospital, please, that's not the intent. I don't know how you read that out of this book. But, you know, for the most part, whatever anybody thinks, you're spot on. For me, I think one takeaway I would, with, with anything I write, I think the purpose of literature and storytelling is to build empathy. And so I would would hope that through this, people... It is a critique of a lot of things, but more importantly, psychologically, it's the story of somebody who is learning that the things they believed were not true. And I, I think there's a temptation to think like, oh, that's so sad for Tutu. It's not just Tutu. You know, we, we all, even now, I'm 
and I'm 34, whatever age you're at, there are things you believe to be true that are not, you know, and I don't want people to take for granted how difficult that is to overcome. You know, I think sometimes we look at, especially old people, and we think they have outdated beliefs or this and that. It's like, you do too, you know, like, it's not just, it's not always just the other. It's not always just them. Like, we are all, you know, this is a book about systems. We all exist within systems that exert influences on us. And, and I think that's important. You know, that, that would be the big takeaway if any anything. We'll back off the book itself just a little bit because I know we're all sweating <laughs> as we're trying to go through the <laughs> linguistic gymnastics of not spoiling anything. I know. I'm interested, and I know James is interested too, um, in terms of the projects that you're taking on, the impact mm-hmm. that you want to have, the type of career that you're developing. Do you have any author or authors whose careers you would like to mirror or mimic in any kind of way? Uh, financially, yeah, I have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but more like creatively and, and just the arc of it. Um, I admire P. Jelly Clark a lot. I admire his movement from and between novellas and novels in different forms. And his shorts are great. He's just he's just a virtuoso. And the his ability, I don't have his, to be frank, I don't have his research acumen or ability, but his ability to dive into history and extract meaning and truth and narrative from it is is impressive you know it's it's incredible and so i admire that a lot i admire his career i'm a huge fond of lee fan i think what she's done with second world fantasy what she does in jade uh the Greenbone saga you know jade city jade war jade legacy it's there's a lot of overlap with i think what i aspire to do um i was talking to a to a, another author recently about you know when i was when i was a kid most fantasies that were second world were just like in an imagined world. Sometimes, you know, roughly based on, often roughly based on some European, you know, some version of Europe, but not explicitly. Whereas I think now I see a lot of like very explicit, like this book takes place in Mongolia, which is not bad, but it's very different. And so, and also as a child of, you know, I'm Nigerian American, I'm, I'm two cultures. I can't do that as, as well. And, I, and I'm, I'm less fixated on, on, recreating a story that takes place in a version of Nigeria or a version of America. So I think Fonda's uh, Kekon, this like blend of cultures and influences and time periods, even it's not explicitly in the sixties or in the thirties or in the nineties, that appeals to me a lot. And I I think that kind of career of creating those kind of works is, is what I aspire toward. Both authors you mentioned, they've bounced between novel, short stories, novellas, do you see yourself doing that with the world of the lives of the Ajungo, where maybe we'll get a full-blown novel or a short story collection or something in the future? Not with this specific series. You know, in, in my brain, I don't know if they never, because my brain is inconsistent and unreliable. But so far as I conceptualize it, yeah, I think it's three novellas. Potentially, you know, four. Hey, if sales go well, I think I have a fourth I could put together. But yeah, these stories came to me. You know, the stories, I'm, you guys know how it is. Like stories kind of come to you in their own way sometimes where you're just like all right this is how much space it's it's giving me like mm-hmm. this is 80 pages this is nine pages this is or you know in word count typically i think most of us think but so i i, I don't like to force stories to be something they're not you know i my debut ya novel it came to, i thought it was a novella i tried to squeeze it into a novella it was now 368 pages so you know whatever it needs to be I'm, I'm, I enjoy going there. And it's part of what I admire about these other authors. They're just still writing in the space. Other than trying to squeeze the story in, did you find mm-hmm. that there are certain benefits to the novella format or some challenges to the novella format that you've been running into? Yeah. I'm working on the second book right now, which is proving to be much more challenging. The first one, as I said, it came so, you know, and sequels are fully based. But there's, there's so many cool things about the novella as a form. I, I think it sits better at where most attention spans are, to be frank. I think the internet is, I know it's broken my brain. I'm sure it's broken other brains where I can't pay attention in the way I used to before. And so I think, you know, the Japanese light novel kind of forged this path of like these shorter stories. And I think the novella, the novella in, in our, in the West or in America has picked up that tradition and it's a good amount. It's, it's a good meal. You know, it's not, you're not stuffed. You're not starving. Like it's, it's a healthy dish, but it's difficult in the sense of calibrating how much story you can tell. I think part of the reason Lies works as novella is because it's a bit of a fable. You don't expect certain details and it wouldn't even help you to get certain details. And so I'm able to extract those or, or, or avoid them in a way that fits in the space. But that can be tough. I, you know, I grew up on 
hardcore fantasy where it's like everything's described. You know, Gordon Arnold will spend pages describing the feast. That would not make sense in lives. You know, it would be crazy. <laughs> so having to restrain that urge can be difficult sometimes. I'm like, I know exactly what this mountain looks like and I want to describe it in a way that's beautiful and lush and metaphoric. And I just can't do that. Yeah. Vonda Lee recently tweeted out about her recent novella, Untethered Sky, that most of the criticism she's gotten is this should have been a novel. Um, have you gotten yeah. any of that pushback with with your novella? Yeah. No, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. I get it. I'm a big, yeah, I, again, I'm a big fan of whatever opinion anybody has is right for them, you know? And so I, I know I'm also, you know, I've been, I've been a reader for a while. I know that there was a time probably in my reading life where I would have said the same thing about a book. Oh, it's too short. It should have been a novel. I don't know what that means now because I'm in a different place, but I get it. I, in, in my personal opinion, I, I agree with you. I think that adding too much to what you have here would have taken away from the aesthetic of it being a fable because yes. it, it would have lost the voice of right. what you have in the book. That is what, for me, set it apart from a lot of what I've read uh, in recent years was that voice and that that approach to it. I, I wonder, do you think that having gone through formal training in an MFA program, did that impact your approach to, say, taking on a, a different type of story like a, a fable? I think so. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm never one to say that MFA is necessary, or even always good, to be frank. You know, like, I, I, you know, writing is far beyond any formal education. But for me, I think having two years to play around a lot helped me out. You know, I think I was so um, intimidated by the greats and I thought I had to like recreate that. I had like, a, I had like a whole like seven book series plans when I was like 15, like 500 pages per book. It's about this, maybe it's about our business. I don't want to give it away, but probably not. But it was just so heavy and dense and biblical in the way that my idols had been writing. And then I got into an MFA and I had this chance to play and just experiment and see what, you know, throw paint, see what it made. So I don't think I could have been as comfortable writing something like this without that experience. Does this tone carry on to the next couple of novellas? Or are they also fable-esque? Yeah. 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 You know, the <laughs> again, no spoilers. It's one of the things I think is interesting about fables. And I think I explored a little in this book is that um, there's something we inherently associate them with like acuteness and acquaintness. You know, it's like, Oh, it's like a fable. It's a fairy tale. Like mm -hmm. there's a certain, I'll say like certain disrespect for them. I think we assume that like fables are how people used. It's like a lesson for how people used to think there's like a certain, like, well, you know, our ancestors, they can only handle simple stories, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to see that fables are simply a way of delivering a message in a way to guide people and we consume fables all the time. You know, we, I joked in a recent interview, I was like, the American dream is a fable. You know, <laughs> like, there's all these fables that we all consume and internalize and accept, but we don't view them as fables. We view them as like, you know, self-help book or as a, a financial strategy. And so I, I do want to some extent in this series to explore, to force the reader to confront experiences or narratives when not presented as fables and just kind of see that interplay between like, you know, how, how true does a story feel and how empathetic can I be when something's a fable versus when it's not presented as a fable. So there will be some fluctuation of the voice perhaps, but largely it's the same base. Is there a timeline for when we should expect book two to be out? Yeah, <laughs> there is. My editor is very adamant. Yes. Currently it is planned for March next year. Absolutely. What I'm trying my hardest to stick to writing books is hard y'all. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying. I'm I'm looking forward to it because I, I very much enjoyed what, what you put out. We haven't really done this enough. So All right. Here is a copy of The Lies of Ujongo. Please, please check this out. I would say it is a very fast paced read that, uh, you know, it's it's a tight hundred pages, um, 80 some pages, actually, it, it will, it will take you from point A to B very quickly. But in between that point A and B, you get a lot. As we're talking about for the last 30 minutes, we can, we could go on and talk about the themes a lot more in depth if we were kind of trying to avoid spoilers. Please check it out for yourselves. If you want my full thoughts, my review is on the fantasyreviews.com. So you can definitely check out my full review there as well. But I think that's a good place to wrap up the interview portion and then we can move on to Dragonfire. Sounds good. Let's do it. Dragonfire.
All righty. So it is time for our Dragonfire segment. This is the part of our episode where we just do a rundown of whatever topics we're feeling, some topics that are going to be related to Moses's work, some that we just feel like talking about. Um, so we have three minutes to talk about each topic. Once the three minutes is up, we will move on. So for our first topic, number one, how closely should fighting scenes mimic the real world or actual historical fighting tactics and practices? Mm. And what is the right balance between the real world and the fantasy worlds that we've created? James, did you want to start off here? I'll start it off. So I would say this question depends on how closely your world mimics the real world. Um, In any world, I think that you have to think about the blocking and the movement. If you're trying to take a reader through a battle scene, you want them to understand what's going on because confusion is is not great. Uh, I I think I've heard Brandon Sanderson say this before that it's it's okay if your characters are confused in the moment. It's not okay if your readers are confused in the moment. So there needs to be a level of detail that actually fills out the the world and the scene and what's going on. And if your world deals with physics in the same way, if it deals with with hurt and damage in the same way, then it has to mimic some of reality. That being said, swords weren't really a big thing in combat for most of history, but we love them because they're cool <laughs> and they're fun. So the rule of cool, I think, wins out a lot of the time, but you can't take it too far um, because then it becomes something else. And if you're writing an anime, then great. But most of us are not writing something where you have a 20 foot sword. I agree. All of that. I agree with spot on. I, I think a lot of the battle of a battle scene, a lot of the fight of a fight scene is, is in the setup. You know I mean? I think similar to a sex scene, you know, you should know what you need to know going into it. You don't want to start learning new things unless, you know, part of the goal of these scenes is to reveal character that should happen. But like, in terms of like, I, I don't necessarily need a description of the of the nightstand in the middle of the sex scene. That doesn't make a lot of sense. In the same way that I don't think I should be getting descriptions of battlefields in the middle of a fight scene. I, I need these things established. Similarly, I don't necessarily need the mechanics described in detail for romance or fight scene. You know what I mean? Like we kind of know how these things work as adults. So give me what's unique about this. Give me some poetic, artistic, brilliantly worded I, I think a lot about george r. r martin's blur of steel he used for jamie lannister i'm like that's perfect three words i know exactly how this guy fights and so yeah i, I don't always need all the blocking i love it and i love martial arts but you know there's effective ways to convey that i love when our podcast interviews mirror each other like this because in our last episode we asked crystal matar about mm-hmm. sex scenes and she compared them <laughs> to battle scenes and fight scenes yeah. and then you just did the complete opposite i love when that happens yeah. for me i guess it doesn't really matter because I don't really know what a real fight scene looks like anyway. Um, I'm the type of person where if a fantasy author is like they pulled out their stiletto, I'm picturing a woman's high heel and that's how they're stabbing each other. Um, when you describe battle scenes, I don't know what's going on. Like, I know people talk about like Alexander Darwin's The Combat Codes all yeah. the time as being super accurate. Super. I read that book when it was self-published. I was like, cool. That, I guess that's how it really is. I mean, my brother yeah. is an MMA fighter and a boxer, and I still oh, really? don't know. Yeah, we're we're complete opposites. Like, oh, picture wow. everything about me and picture <laughs> the opposite, and you've got my brother, um, even yeah. though he's only a year older. But yeah, I just don't understand the mechanics anyway, so I guess as a reader, it doesn't really bother me. <laughs> I had no idea about your brother. Now, now I have so many questions. Same, about- I know. Yeah, yeah. I will. Yeah. One time I'll throw, I'll throw pictures up. I mean, we kind of look alike, but yeah, he's actually got like muscles and you know, I don't, I I guess that brings us into our next question. Number two. And, and maybe for uh, a little help for this question, we'll, we'll define remake, reboot and reimagining. So revival would be if you have this, if we're reviving a TV show, movie or book series, it's just taking what's already there, the continuity that's already there. And we're just moving it through. Um, When we talk about a reboot, or I mean a remake, um, a remake is when you have the same tone, same themes, but you're updating it for a new generation. And a reimagining is like what they did with Battlestar Galactica. Like you're completely just taking the core plot, but you're throwing away everything else and starting from scratch. So that's the difference between a revival, a remake, and a a reimagining. So that's the definition. you say reboot too? A reboot is the same thing to me as a revival. revival. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, it's keeping that same continuity, kind of like what they just did with like Party Down. It's like just continuing the same yeah. story. What we want to say is like what makes for a successful remake, reboot, reimagining, whatever, like however you want to interpret that. So you want me to start off? 
I never want the reboot revival. Uh, I know that we, o- because like, I always anticipate it. I always think it's going to be great. I remember when they were like, we're bringing back Veronica Mars. And I was like, we're <laughs> here for it. Yeah. And I'm always disappointed because I feel like that thing was a product of its time. And I never want it back. Um, so I know they're talking about like a community movie right now. Don't necessarily need it. Need it. The magic's not coming back. I think if you're going to redo a project, it has to be a reimagining. There has to be a complete new story with a new purpose for having that. So for like Battlestar Galactica, it was reinterpreting the, what, 1960s sci-fi series for a post 9-11 world. Nice. And I think there was a reason for doing that. Did they maintain that past couple of seasons? No, but there was a reason for doing it. And I think that's the only reason to bring back a story that we've already done. Otherwise, I want new stories. Um, I don't care about, you know, re-hanging out with my old TV friends. You know, <laughs> I've had it. I'll rewatch it. But I don't need it again because it's just going to be a lesser version of itself. I completely, almost completely agree. I, I completely agree. I'm a huge fan. So you can see my shirt. I'm a big Final Fantasy VII nerd. And the Final Fantasy VII remake came out a couple years ago. And it's the best thing that's ever been made for that exact reason is that I think people assume they want a, a reboot. They're like, I just want to experience it again. But like, they negate the fact that you, know, you can't experience it again. You cannot experience a 12-year-old's fervor for opening the game on their birthday. It's not going to happen. So I think when you reimagine or, or reinvent in some way, you can re-simulate, which I think should be the goal, to re-simulate the experience the person had, not retell the sequence of events that they've already encountered. And I think... It's a lot more challenging, but I think it's a lot more meaningful when you can, I think that's one thing I love about Final Fantasy VII Remake is that at some point I was playing it and I was like, this feels like I, when I played it the first time. You know, the story is the same, but they've made certain changes that make it feel like the same thing all over again. That to me is incredible and, and very challenging. I would say I agree with you most of the time, but my favorite show of all time is HBO's Watchmen. I think it is the perfect series of a season of television and it did so by rebooting something it took the world of watchmen it took it did not delineate from that timeline it assumed all of those things happened in the past and then it made something that made that original that that original ip better i think that series did something with that material that elevated it in a way that was amazing, but it didn't do so by trying to reimagine that world. It took the world as is and took it further and 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 challenged things in a new way. Yeah, I think we have to put an asterisk on that one, though, because it was done by a new person in a new medium. So mm-hmm. I think it kind of toes the line between Aren't being reboots a revival. always done by new people for the most part? <laughs> yeah, when I think of like a revival, I think of like Broadway. It's literally, it's the same show. We just have yeah. new actors. So maybe, yeah. So I, I, for me, Watchmen, I agree with you. It's amazing, but it also feels like an asterisk where it's like, this is something more bigger and special. You're just trying but, to take the win away from me. It's always. not fair. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I do agree with you, James, in the sense that I think that the when they marketed that show, they didn't really mm-hmm. tell people that you needed to have already read Watchmen to yeah. understand what the heck was going on. I remember my dad, was just like because my dad's like a big like hbo drama person and he was like i'm gonna watch it but he never read Watchmen before and was like i have no idea what's going on because they never really pitched it as like a sequel no yeah that's true so our next one number three um this is just something silly for us to do moses i recognize i i saw on your store uh, on your website that you have a merch store but <laughs> there's nothing on it yet <laughs> yeah. so nathan and i are gonna pitch the first thing you should sell on your merch store and you got to decide which one of us wins. Let's do it. Nathan, you want to start it off? Yeah. Mine's going to have to be very vague because I don't want to get into spoiler territory, but I'm thinking like, you know, the like see no evil, hear no evil, make speak no evil, like little monkey figurines. But I think for like the, the three major things that happen in your nice. novella, like there should just be the little figurines. It'll be very dark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that would be a really cool piece of merch for this book. Oh, that'd be sick. Yeah. This is not a spoiler at all. It is the first line. I think that you need a canteen with the words, there is no water in the city of lies. <laughs> like oh, just an old good. school canteen. I would, that would be so cool. Yeah. 
oh no, these are two great products. I feel like, like, what is it? Shark Tank? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, let me counter offer. Um, I'm going to go with the canteen. Here's why. Not because, so it logistically, and this is, I'm a creative, I should not think this way, but logistically, I'm like, I could feel like I could put that together pretty, pretty easy. Whereas the figurine, I'm like, I need to get an artist, like a sculptor. Like, what, you know, what's the first step? Do I get a sculpture? Do I get an artist to draw a mock up of it? That, then it's like, you know, probably go through several rounds of revision where the canteen, I could probably like use papyrus and like put it on it. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And it it is a brilliant first line to a book. So, you know, that's definitely what you want to push forward. James, now that you took this one, I think that puts you (laughs) up at two wins to my one win in our author battles. We occasionally have done like, I think the last two were were pitching fan casts of the the oh, previous nice. author's books, but but I I win the merch battle, so I expect to cut. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll have my people reach out. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then, moving on to our next topic, number four. What we want to get into is our least favorite or worst fantasy trope. The only thing mm. is that we we're not talking anything that's like offensive. So we're not yeah. talking like, oh, all fantasy is homophobic or sexist or anything yeah. like that. Uh, we're just talking like the thing we don't like to see in the book that's non-problematic. So Moses, did you want to start us off on this one? I do, but I'm still thinking. <laughs> so if anybody else wants to start. <laughs> I, I can start. I hate enemies to lovers um, mm. because I think that it's it's either you weren't really enemies you were just like antagonistic to each other a little bit and now you found out you liked each other or you were enemies and now you're lovers and people missed a lot of the in-between when they're doing it as an author they're like and then they said something nice to me so I forgot about their family's genocide like (laughs) well no you need you need more steps here so I just I never believed the trope Especially when it's obviously not planned from the beginning, but they just don't know what to do with the villain character. So they're like, might as well make them a love interest. Uh, That's even worse to me. Who did it well recently, though, I thought was Hannah Witten in the Foxglove King, uh, because the villain that became the lover wasn't like the like kills baby kind of villain. He was just more of the like kind of assholey kind of brooding love interest so i thought she did a nice job of using the trope but keeping it believable when most don't so there are some exceptions i can jump in and go next so my least favorite is when death isn't permanent when there are Mm. off-screen deaths that are just there to fake you out or also what we see a lot in fantasy when there's some magical spell or MacGuffin that allows you to resurrect a character, but yeah. then there are like a, a laundry list of fine print about why you can't do it for this other character that the author wants to keep dead. So I really hate that. It just makes it so that I don't trust death anymore in any book that I read, and it just doesn't allow me to emotionally connect with what I'm reading. That's so good. My mind just went through my book. I'm like, I don't do that at all. No. <laughs> He's oh, talking about I would have let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so much more bothered by what YouTube just said that I am by my own thing. That I feel like you answered the question well. I'm going to try to add to it. I think the chosen one, actually. Like, if, if literature is in some way supposed to mirror life, I'm like, how? That's not a thing. You know, like, you're the chosen for existing talents, for work. Like, there's something about you that will get you to the dance. And then often to me in life, the people who like succeed or, or, you know, become heroic, whatever, it's simply because they persisted. It's simply because they were the one left standing when things ended. You know, I think about like uh, Robert Jordan, when he talked about his experiences in Vietnam and how like it inspired him to be a writer. Cause like people just straight up died. People he knew who had all this promise and legacy and all these things they wanted to accomplish, they were gone. And so he's like, I should probably get to work on the things that matter to me. I think that feels more true than like, you know, Artemis, you know, you all know what that doesn't that's not life. That's not what happens. No, that's yeah. that's real. Especially when it weirdly, and I'm gonna kind of violate our own rule here now that the time is up. <laughs> um especially when it weirdly becomes like biological determinism. Uh, right. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, even a lot of magic systems start to feel weird like that, where they're like critiquing power structures, but mm-hmm. then like your magic is determined by your DNA. <laughs> right. You know? Right. <laughs> Or like low-key your cast, right? The book doesn't address it. Like, all right, these people can do it and you can't just because God likes them more, I guess. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
And if you're interested in books that subvert that trope, I'm not going to get into it because it's spoiler, but um, Sarah El Arifi's yeah. Final Strife and the Ending Fire trilogy does a nice job of kind of directly commenting on that kind of trope and stuff in fantasy. Mm. So definitely recommend those books. Our next one is number five. Along the same lines of like tropes and things like that, but um, what's the most underrated or underused fantasy setting? So we're thinking, you know, different kind of climates, different kind of arenas. What what do people need to explore more in fantasy? Moses, do you want to start this one off? Yeah, this one I can start. I would say jungle, tropical rainforest, however you want to describe it. I think it's like I, we get a lot of, I mean, partially because of the continental influence of fantasy, you know, some, if you're going to write a European inspired fantasy, you're probably not going to have like a thick, lush tropical jungle, but it's just the coolest in, environment, you know, in terms of biodiversity, even, you know, in our world, in terms of biodiversity and it's, it can be very hostile. It can be very dangerous, but it's literally teeming with life in some ways that the proto environment is where we evolve from. Like it's, to me, it's, it's so ripe with everything. It's ripe with meaning and metaphor. And, and yeah, I, I think Lord of the Flies to me is like only cool because it happened on a jungle, you know, like I guess it'd be cool, you know, if it happened in a desert or whatever, but like that's not even a speculative novel. It's just a book, but you put, yeah. you put it in a jungle, it's better. So yeah, having like warring fantasy civilizations or just fantasy stories in the jungle would be awesome. Yeah, but nice. James doesn't like the Rainwild Chronicles by Robin Hobbs, so. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you need to get to because you hate the live ship traders somehow. I, I would say live ship traders, but. Live ship, uh, whatever. <laughs> the characters are just hateable, okay? Um, I, I would have to go. I, I, I like that answer. I like the jungle. I went with underground, subterranean. Ooh, uh, right. I, I really like when that happens. So. I'm currently, and I, I saw Nathan post something on, I think, Twitter. I'm currently into Silo. I'm, I've watched the first couple of episodes. But that kind of, con, like, that conscriptive feeling, that that yeah. congestion of that there's not much place to move. There is a lot of metaphor in it as well that, that can mm-hmm. kind of, you can think of, like, tier systems and you can get into power there. Um, but I, I like that exploration of subterranean worlds. Yeah, especially since they all like feel the same. I'd like, you know, is there a version of that that's not dystopian? I'm wondering because like mm-hmm. Silo is like that. Um, yeah. What was that book when I was a kid? Uh, like the City of Ember was that the one where like they were running about out of electricity? You know, it's that same kind of vibe. Yeah. But I'm wondering if there's more diverse stories we can tell in an underground environment. Yeah. For mine, it's I think an, a double edged sword for me. Um, but I'm gonna go with more like Ice Age or prehistoric. Mm-hmm. um fantasy and i say it's double-edged sword yeah. because my full-time job i'm an archaeologist so this can get real dangerous <laughs> for me real fast but i'd love to see more of it i'd love to see people explore it in a way that's not clan of the cave bear and it's weird sexual politics you know i would <laughs> i would I, you know i want to see more people exploring that in magic and the worldviews of of those peoples and in those environments and i think mm-hmm. ice age cold arctic environments would be really cool and we don't see it very often you don't think Jurassic Park does it perfectly? <laughs> That's too old. That's too old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm, you know, I always tell people if I'm if I'm excavating something and I find a dinosaur, I've gone way too far. Uh, you know, I I stopped caring millions of years before that. <laughs> I think this is our last one. Do you want to take it off, uh, Nathan? Number six. Yeah. So um, for our last topic, we wanted to talk about what is the most important aspect of a fantasy book? And the options are prose, plot, themes, world building, battle scenes, or the ending. So Moses, I I think, do you want, do you want the first shot at it or we, or I can take it. You can take it. You can take it. Go for it. All right. Yeah. Um, I think any one of these can arguably be the most important. I would say world building for a fantasy is the most important thing that you can have it, because I have to believe your world. It has to be yeah. internally consistent. The world building affects how your cities work. It affects how your environments work. It affects how your magic system works. It affects all of that. And if I don't believe your world, 
I'm not going to believe the plot that's set in it. I'm not going to believe the battles that happen in it. I'm not going to believe the themes that you're trying to tell. I'm not going to believe anything if I don't believe the world that you've set up for me, because often that is what our characters are interacting with. That is what the plot stems up against, because that that world is why this is a fantasy. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back a little bit though, because I think that sometimes fantasy is too much about its own world building. Like when I'm reading a book, I can tell when that book started as a D campaign. Like <laughs> I can tell when yeah. you built your world first and then tried to craft a story after. And I'd rather see that story come first and then the world building be influenced by the larger story that you are already planning on telling. But Moses, I'll let you pick a second one. If it's not world building, what is it? If it's not world building, I'm going to say hesitantly, I'm going to say theme. Okay. because All right. So we said a fantasy novel and I'm trying to think of like, what do fantasy novelists do that other authors of different genres maybe don't do? World building is a big one, right? To, to the same mm-hmm. extent. But I think fantasy, speculative fiction in general, you're inherently speculating, right? You're inherently examining what ifs and what could be's and what was and how that influences what, you know, things moving forward. And so I think thematically, uh, every book has a theme, but I think there are certain themes that make much more sense to explore in the context of fantasy. And so I'm, I'm trying to think of like examples, but you know, there's, there's a certain amount of truth you can get at through displacement, through putting somebody in a, in a place that, they think is unfamiliar, but it's actually the same as where they're living. They just don't understand. You know, I, I think it's why the genre can be so subversive. You know, you can get at it in some countries if you want to tell the truth or in some environments that are very repressive. If you want to tell the truth, you better throw it in a fantasy world because if you just say it as it is, nobody's going to, you know, allow that. So I, I think theme is a uniquely important aspect of the genre. I would go, I would say for me, for novellas, it's theme, but for us, mm-hmm. for a regular full-size novel, it's characters. Like, I'm the type of person who uh, immediately I close the book. I can't tell you anything that happened <laughs> in it. Um, I can tell you no plot point. Picking it back up from the beginning, it's like rereading it for the first time. But I remember characters. Character is what sticks with me as the reader. It's what I remember years later. It's what ties me to my favorite fantasy series. I think if you look at, if you'd ask me, like, what my top three or five fantasy series are, it's because I remember those characters. I remember the journeys that I went on with those characters, even if I don't remember any details about the journey itself. So for me, I think character comes first as a reader and everything else has to fall in after that. I, I'm I'm going to challenge that with the judges. That was not on the list. Moses. <laughs> was character not? I, mean, was it? I didn't know oh, if the list was I thought, like it was, all I thought it was. I thought it was. Uh-oh. So then I guess I answered theme. Um, oh, shoot. Um, what do I go with then? Um, well, we docked out world building and I said I didn't like that. Moses <laughs> took theme. Um and I don't, we already talked about how I can't follow battle scenes anyway. So obviously I'm not picking battle scenes. Um, I really thought we put character on this list. Um, I mean, I thought it was too, to be fair. That was okay. my first pick. I oh, just, yeah. it on the list, um, so. I just, whatever, I don't, what is that called when you like risk remember something? What is, so I'm going to go with, yeah, I'm going to go with plot then because I, I, I'm not in any, <laughs> the thing that you don't remember. I'm so dedicated. I'm so dedicated to this answer. <laughs> because the thing is i don't care like prose is great but i think like you can have Mm. brandon sanderson utilitarian prose and i think that works i and endings i enjoy a really good ending but i don't think uh, a weak ending necessarily ruins the whole book unless it's super super bad so yeah i guess to go plot but yeah i'm not really committed to that one guys (laughs) (laughs) no i i would say that i would go prose if it was what could kill a book the quickest for me if I open up a book and I just cannot get into any kind of flow of reading, like I, I'm sorry, I'm yeah. not going to finish this book. Prose can kill a book quicker than anything else for me. Yeah. Well, I, I think that was a fun little segment. Thank you, Moses, for for playing this little game that we have. Of course. Thanks for building that game. That was fun. <laughs> All right. But I think that wraps us up then for what is this, James? Episode five? Yeah. Of the Fantasy Review podcast. So Thank you, Moses, for joining us and being our special guest and talking with us. His novella, The Lies of the Jingo, is out now from Tor.com Publishing. Um, so make sure you pick up your copy. It's upside down, James, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It works, uh, though. <laughs> special <laughs> yeah. Um, But yeah, it works either way. 
So, and thank you everyone for listening. Please subscribe to the Fantasy Review Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're also available on YouTube. We post new episodes every other Tuesday. If you're interested in more reviews, interviews, recommendation lists, and more, check us out at thefantasyreviews.com. So, James, thank you as always. And Moses, thank you again for joining us and answering our questions. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. I really it was appreciate a pleasure. it. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone.